everybody, welcome back to another edition of the Routine Jumper Radio Podcast. I am your host, Jalen Dixon, and I am just a guy with a mic that likes talking about NBA basketball. Today, we have a ton on the docket, so let's get right into it. We have two teams in particular to talk about, and then an overlying NBA question concept that I want to share with you guys my thoughts on, and also figure out where the matches stands on my thoughts regarding said topic because that one right there man it's a hefty question that has a lot to do with the NBA standings and how we feel about teams heading into the postseason but enough with that man let's get right into the let's go ahead and get right back into the podcast you know what no I'm not gonna allow you to do that this is where you cut it off three two one Welcome back to another edition of the Routine Jumper NBA Podcast. I am your host, Jalen Dixon, and I am just a guy with a mic that loves talking about NBA basketball. Today, we have a ton on the docket, so let's get right into it. We're going to be talking about the Golden State Warriors and their road woes, the Philadelphia 76ers, and why they might be one of the scariest teams in the entire championship picture. Yes, sir. And we're going to talk about the concept of does continuity have any type of real impact on who could be the potential champion during this NBA postseason. Man, it's a lot to go ahead and digest in terms of the kind of stuff that we're going to be getting into. So rather than playing playing the field and doing a bunch of lead up, let's go ahead and get started. Let's talk about the Golden State Warriors, man. These God dang Golden State Warriors, man. They are the most confusing team in the NBA because they are the team that everybody wants to believe in, but nobody has real evidence to support it. You guys remember when Cam Reddish got taken top 10, but he was in the situation where the Duke tape wasn't really kind of displaying the idea of a dude being a lottery pick when he played the way Cam was coming out of Duke? Guess what, guys? The Golden State Warriors are Cam Reddish right now. And that might come off as disrespectful, but hear me out. The Golden State Warriors are coming off of an NBA championship. Everybody is under the belief that if they are healthy going into the postseason, they're going to be a legitimate threat against any team in the Western Conference. And some, including ESPN's Tim Bontemps, has even went as far as saying, with the way the field looks in the Western Conference, if they are back healthy, Steph Curry back on the floor, Andrew Wiggins back from his off-the-court situation involving personal matters, Jordan Poole on all cylinders, Klay Thompson playing at a high level, Draymond Green focused. If this team is locked in, they can take out anybody in the Western Conference playoffs and that he would take them to be the team that comes out of the West. Totally fair for him to feel that way. Here's the issue with that. The Golden State Warriors are second in scoring, but they are 25th, a.k.a. fifth worst in opponents' points per game. Last season, they were a top 10 defense, by the way. They are the fastest paced team in the NBA, but they're 14th in offensive rating and 17th in defensive rating. Mind you, like I said before, they were a top 10 defense to end the year last year going into the postseason. It's not looking like they're going to be a top 10 defense this season. The main thing that has been hurting them so far in terms of their their season in general is they do not generate easy baskets. Peep game. They're the second highest scoring team in the league. But here's the crazy part. 
They are the worst team in the NBA in terms of free throw attempts with just under 20 a game. The reason why they score so much is because they're first in three point attempts with almost 44 a game. And they're the fourth best team in terms of percentage at 38.3%. So their saving grace is that they're able to get the three ball up. Obviously, we know that's because of Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, and Jordan Poole, who each, mind you, Steph Curry, almost 12 three points a game. Klay Thompson, almost 11 three-point attempts per game. Jordan Poole, almost eight attempts per game. Oh, Dante DiVincenzo, just over five attempts per game. That's why. They're also one of the top assisting teams in the league, so they definitely play that Warriors together style brand of basketball. So they're going to be a team that constitutes a significant offensive output just because of the fact that if they can shoot more threes than you and hit them at a high clip, most teams cannot compete with that. In the postseason, though, they do not create contact at a high clip, and they are going to be in a much more physical environment. So that inability to be able to generate free throws is going to hurt them because the live by the three, die by the three concept, ironically, was something that did not work against them in a series where for a majority of the series, arguably, it could have been their demise. Everybody remembers the infamous Houston Rockets series. If it weren't for the Houston Rockets going Oh, for 8 million from beyond the arc, there's an argument. Well, that and also the idea of, you know, the Chris Paul injury. If those two things don't happen, many say that the Houston Rockets go on to beat the, Go the, the Golden State Warriors and probably even win the championship that season, potentially. Now we look at it, it could be the reverse. This kind of three-point acumen for them, although it is much cleaner than what the Houston Rockets were doing back then, that is something kind of similar to, I think I mentioned this on the last podcast regarding the Boston Celtics, this live and die by the three offense that they have. It's detrimental because it's one of those things that if they're not hitting at a high rate, they are vulnerable. You want to know how vulnerable? This is how vulnerable. When they go on the road, they can't hit any, bro. They can't hit anything. Peep this. This season, the Golden State Warriors are 7-26 and 26 on the road and currently are on like a 7-8 game. Let me double check. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Yep. 8-game eight losing streak in terms of their road record right now. They've lost more games in a row right now than they've won overall on the road this entire season. Keep this, though. The crazy part about it is They've had some pretty solid three-point outings throughout this stretch, but most recently, 28.6% from three, 29.5% from three, 30.8% from three. There's a couple of these games in here where they've shot pretty solid from beyond the arc, but for the most part, there's a good, decent amount of these games where when the three ball is not falling, it completely changes the dynamic of this team offensively. I think something else that it should be notable is this Andrew Wiggins thing. I think that most people, if you genuinely watch the series, can make an argument, if not really push the agenda, that last season in the postseason, and in particular in a series like the one they had against the Boston Celtics, Andrew Wiggins was the Golden State Warriors' second best player. The dude was hitting a three at a high clip. He proved that he was arguably the best, if not one of the best three ND wings in the NBA in terms of the skill set of being able to shoot the three at a high clip and then go out and guard multiple positions on the perimeter throughout a game. He was able to do that at a high level. And Andrew Wiggins, outside of, I think it was COVID illness and this now personal matter situation, 
Andrew Wiggins has pretty much been an Iron Man within the NBA. He's a guy who's been entire, almost entirely too reliable <laughs> in terms of his overall value to be viewed as anything less than a very com comparable um, role player for any team. Because similar to guys like Mikael Bridges, who have significant, significantly high value at the three and D wing position, position or three and D wing style position, he is a guy that has been on the floor and been productive and been able to do so over the course of an entire 82 games. So with that being the case, I think there is the argument for the Golden State Warriors that they genuinely, genuinely could be scary if they position themselves properly, but they are in a situation right now where I, bro, the question we, the question we have to ask ourselves is how much can we allow NBA lore and the overall concept of we've seen them do it before carry our opinion in terms of how we believe they are able to duplicate that in a way that they will be able to make another postseason run. What's the cleaner way to be able to phrase that? How can we use the past to facilitate creating a real point for the Golden State Warriors in terms of believing that they are really a championship contender when despite everything we know about their mental makeup and what we've seen from a resume standpoint over the last five to six seasons, this is the product on the floor right now. This is the product. The product is less than 10 games less than 10 victories on the road. The product is that they are, I think on an eight game winning streak in terms of their home record or a nine game winning streak in terms of their home record and an eight game losing streak in terms of when they go on the road. The truth is in a seven game series for a team that is currently, yep, as I figured, as a team that is in the sixth spot, only a game ahead of the Timberwolves and the Dallas Mavericks in the standings to stay out of the play-in tournament, this is a team that is more than likely, unless they go on some kind of run, which everybody and their mama keeps calling for, and we're running out of games for them to put this run together, but unless they go on some kind of run, they're not going to be a team that finishes in the top four with home court advantage. If you ask me, if the Golden State Warriors are in a series where they do not have home court advantage, I'm not saying you chalk it up as an ultimate L, but I think you look at the Golden State Warriors and you tell yourself that unless it's a very significantly favorable matchup for them, you might have to take the home team, bro. Because guess what? If the series goes to seven games, yeah, look, normally, of course you take Curry in a game seven with a chance to advance. Of course you do. But what about this season? constitutes that belief what about this season constitutes that belief now tim bontons made a very great point on the hoop collective podcast of last week that i think is something worth giving a lot of consideration to he mentioned the idea that we have to look at the regular season for exactly what it is we have this preconceived notion a lot of times that we try to con that we try to compare the regular, regular season in a way that all of the things that do or do not work in the regular season will or will not translate the same in the postseason. The play style is different. The calls are taken, taken to a different level. The overall 
atmosphere is influential in terms of the play styles of not just the team in question, but their opponent as well. And obviously matchups matter much more in the postseason than in the regular season because you're seeing a team multiple times in a week game planning for them as opposed to facing three teams in four to five nights, right? And I get that. I get that you cannot correlate regular season success or lack of success to translatability in a postseason setting. But for the Golden State Warriors, this is a team that has kind of struggled to put it together all season long. I mean, this really makes, let's really make sense of it. You go back to the Draymond Green, Jordan Poole incident, the on and off situations with Stephen Curry in terms of being on the floor and not being on the floor due to injury. They reacquired, they reacquired Gary Payton II, and they have a dispute issue with the Portland Trailblazers in terms of his overall like medical stance, I guess, involving his um his physical and his inability to play after initially being uh, acquired. Um, you look at the slow start for Dante DiVincenzo before he started to kind of pick things up towards the back end of the year. Now you have this Andrew Wiggins situation, you know, shout out to his family and stuff. I hope everything is okay. But you have this personal matters issue with Andrew Wiggins that's made him miss like the last two to two and a half weeks or so of the season due to personal matters. It just seems like everything is breaking in the wrong direction for the Golden State Warriors. And unfortunately, the road record is kind of the, the front and center headline of the issues that they've been facing this year. So I think we just have to really sit down and ask ourselves, because I look, let's, let's, let's make sense of the Golden State Warriors for a second, man. We got we to gotta really, really put two and two together in terms of the Golden State Warriors, man, because I don't, want, I don't want to disrespect this team. This is a team with an MVP caliber player in Stephen Curry and an overall solid supporting cast. But this is the, this is the reality. Steph Curry is averaging almost 30 points per game. Klay Thompson is shooting um, lights out from three at 40.7% uh, 40 uh, from the three-point line of dang self. Andrew Wiggins is averaging 17 points per game before he, uh, before he did, you know, had to step away. <clears throat> Excuse me. Jordan Poole is averaging 20 points per game. And Jordan Poole is a very weird X factor because he's a guy that since the, since the, since the contract extension, many feel as though Jordan Poole's impact has not really been felt this season. And I can completely understand that, but it's so weird because Jordan Poole has actually taken steps forward. He's averaging more points per game. Um, he's averaging a, a little bit over in terms of assists per game, a little bit under in terms of rebounds per game, but that's not that's not a big deal. Um, I think the biggest thing for him is not that he's not playing well from an overall productivity standpoint. I just think that his percentages reflect that he has been much more inefficient while being much more aggressive. For example. He's averaging nearly the same amount of minutes per game at just around 30 minutes played per game. But last season, he was about 14 field goal attempts. This season, 16. He Last season, he shot 48, I mean, 44.8% from the field. This season, 42.6. Last season, 55% from two. This year, 52.5. From the free throw line, 
92.5% on three and a half attempts per game. This season, five attempts per game, but 87.2%. I think the idea is that his output has increased in terms of overall productivity, but the efficiency numbers are what's hurting his actual impact on the floor on a night-to-night basis, and they're going to need him to be able to go crazy in the postseason. I think one of the things that went very underrated about the Golden State Warriors postseason run last season was that the most underrated thing about the Golden State's run last year was that Jordan Poole was an absolute demon in games one through three or just about every series on the way to the championship round. Like, I think that's the crazy part that most people do not realize or or look back and really reflect on is in that series against the Denver Nuggets, it was the Jordan Poole party breakout series for him where he snapped through those first two to three games of the series and it really set a solid tone for Golden State. A similar matter took place in the series against the Memphis Grizzlies. I think that when you look across the board, Jordan Poole's X-factor ability He might matter just as much as Andrew Wiggins, despite the fact that I think that Andrew Wiggins is their second best player. I think that Andrew Wiggins might be, I think Andrew Wiggins is the Golden State Warriors second best player in terms of overall productivity and impact on both sides of the floor. But I think Jordan Poole might scarily be their second most important player in terms of what his skill set provides and how that reflects in terms of how the offense runs, the workload for Stephen Curry and Klay Thompson, and the overall threat system that's provided by the Golden State Warriors offense when Jordan Poole can provide nearly the same, if not similar, productivity as Curry on and off the floor in terms of their minutes together. That Jordan Poole might just be that important, especially in a season like this one where they're pretty much all offense and not very much defense. In a season like this one where the defense is kind of holding them back, the offensive output of these guys is that much more important in order for Golden State to be successful on a night-to-night basis. Jordan Poole has a lot to do with that because in terms of offensive shot creation, Jordan Poole is their second best player. Jordan Poole is the only other guy out of Steph Curry that you can ask to go create his own offense and create off the bounce in ways that are conducive to high point totals on a night-to-night basis. Klay Thompson still does not put the ball on the floor often. Klay Thompson still does most of his dirty work off catching shoots and handoffs. Not too much pin down action, but a good amount of it also does create a lot of his offense off the catch and off of screens. Klay Thompson is not a guy that's self-generating much. He's a guy that gets very good open looks off of DHOs and stuff like that. Not to get all super technical and stuff, but he's a guy that definitely does not create his own offense at a high clip. And it's one of those things that allows him to be so dangerous because he does not need the ball in his hands for a significant amount of time in order to create offense. But when you need a bucket, when you need a stretch where you're able to put together consistent down the floor offense, night in and night out, Steph Curry and Jordan Poole are the two guys that steamroll or they're the the two guys that you lean on, basically. So where am I getting at with all of this? Because I feel like I've said a lot, but I want to make sure that I'm kind of pushing my point along. The Golden State Warriors, to me, are the most confusing team in the NBA because they're the team that you'd hate to see in the postseason, you'd hate to bet against, 
but you'd also hate to truly believe in when knowing that there's no real evidence from this season that should make you believe in them as much as most people, if not, I'll just say some people do. The Golden State Warriors have not provided us with anything this season that make that should make us believe that they are a championship contender. But in a Western conference with as much parity as there is, and I'll talk about that a little bit later because I think the West and the East both have a similar issue that I think is actually um, super influential on the overall playoff picture. But in a Western conference that's so conjoined and so just jacked up, man, the Golden State Warriors are like the biggest enigma in the NBA because they are a team that deserves the respect to be viewed as a championship level contender. But the resume for this year says that they're a team that shouldn't even be really considered as a squad you should bet on to come out of the first round in the postseason, just off the fact that if they don't have home court advantage, they only have three games. Um, they only have three games in San Francisco and you got to win four. You got, you got to win four in order to be able to move on. Um, man. Yeah. The Golden State Warriors are one of the biggest enigmas in the NBA and their overall production this season makes it where they are going to be the scariest bet come the playoffs. If I were anybody that likes to indulge in parlays and things of that nature, I think I wouldn't touch the Golden State Warriors with a stick this postseason in terms of betting on them to come out of any given series because I don't know how much you can genuinely trust the Golden State Warriors if we're going strictly off of what we've seen this year and how that's translated so far. And there's not much time left for them to really fix their situation around. Now, a team I want to transition to is the Philadelphia 76ers. They're a team that I feel like is actually on the opposite end of special. The Philadelphia 76ers have won five games straight in a row. Joel Embiid and James Harden have been clicking on all cylinders as of late and have really been playing some great basketball all season long. Philly has a roster that, tend, that they like is kind of starting to really make sense around Joel Embiid for the first time, potentially ever, if we're being real in terms of the fact that they have been Simmons for so long and it seemed like their overall makeup of this team was never truly meant to fit directly around Joel Embiid's skill set this year it definitely feels like they're in a much better position they are one of the better teams in the Eastern Conference they are one of the better teams in the NBA yet they are viewed as probably the third best team in terms of championship equity in their own conference now I just came from talking about the Golden State Warriors who are sixth in the Western Conference and are a team that has not proved anything really this year to show that they are championship level. Yet there are people that would take them to come out of the Western Conference if everything goes right. The Philadelphia 76ers I feel like are in a similar circumstance and most people do not view them at the same caliber. I believe that when you look at the Philadelphia 76ers, they have a very solid team that can match up with them well. And I think this series that is going to really be the one that determines the NBA champion is really going to be like a Philly versus Milwaukee series. And I'm not saying that, oh, that's the, the, the conference finals based on the standings. That would probably be the second round, but a 
Philly Milwaukee. I feel like whichever team comes out of that Philly Milwaukee series is going to have significant momentum against a team like the Boston Celtics. And I think both of those teams match up relatively well against Boston. It's just the thing is when you look at Philly against Boston in the past, you can make an argument that Philadelphia has a couple of demons they got to face. And for a team like them that has Joel Embiid, who's had some serious playoff woes and bad luck, and a guy like James Harden, who has a history of not showing up in the postseason, last thing you need is history not playing in your franchise's favor in a matchup against a team that just came off of making the NBA Finals their dang self. But the Philadelphia 76ers, man, they are a team that I feel as though if we can put so much faith in the Golden State Warriors to come out of the West, and I get that the West is much more jumbled than the Eastern Conference. But if you look at the Eastern Conference, aside from the top two teams above Philly, who else in the East really makes you sweat in terms of picking somebody to come out, um, come out of the conference and represent? Nobody else really makes you sweat. If they are able to take out one, now granted, they're probably going to have to take out both of those teams in order to do so, unless something really slants the wrong way. But they are a team that I think is genuinely built to be able to do that. If we want to read out some of their statistics so far this season, they are number one in three-point uh, three percentage at 38.9%. They are um, 13th in terms of points per game. They are ninth in terms of steals at 7.8, so they're a top 10 team in terms of creating turnovers. They're sixth in terms of free throw attempts per game at 25.5. And something that really stands out about that, 83.5% from, from the free throw line, that's number one in the NBA. We know that has a lot to do with Joel Embiid. We know that has a lot to do with a guy like James Harden, who still, despite it being a little bit of a down year, I'll get to that in a second, but despite that being a little bit of a down year for him in terms of creating um, contact and getting to the line in a high clip, something we're used to being a heavily featured aspect of his offensive game, this year he's been able to rely a lot less on it and still be as efficient as he's always been in terms of making sure he converts at, a at the charity strike. This team also has a really solid makeup with Tyrese Maxey now coming off the bench and being instant offense, averaging almost 20 points per game is dang so. Tobias Harris fits now in a better puzzle piece, uh, fits better as a puzzle piece in the hierarchy as a fourth scoring option. DeAnthony Melton has been a godsend because of his two-way ability on the perimeter to guard next to a James Harden or guard next to a Tyrese Maxey. And it, it, it definitely helps that he's shooting 5.3 attempts per game from beyond the arc and shooting... 40.4% from back there. That's a huge one. I think when you look at the makeup of this team, they go very deep, even going down to a guy like Jalen McDaniels, who they acquired in a trade from the Charlotte Hornets as another 6'9 guy who can just go out on the perimeter and guard. He's going to be able to guard at a high clip. He's going to be able to rebound. He's going to be able to step out on the perimeter and be able to use that big wingspan of his to be able to give them another big body to guard. They can go nine deep with James Harden, Joel Embiid, Tobias Harris, Tyrese, Anthony Melton, P.J. Tucker, Shake Milton, Jalen McDaniels, and I think it would probably be Georges Niang would be the other guy that, like, fills out the rotation for them. And a guy who I think kind of falls out of the pecking order but definitely should be featured more is Paul Reed. The dude has been playing small ball four, small ball five, primarily small ball five for this team. And he has played well in the time that he's been on the floor. Now, it's been limited minutes. If we just read it out, 54 games, 10 minutes per game. The dude's not averaging anything crazy in that time frame. But he's averaging as many rebounds as he has 
as he is points, 3.4 rebounds and 3.4 um, points per game in a 10-minute time frame, I think that he is a guy that gives them a lot of energy. He gives them a lot of flexibility at the five position because he can get out and run. He can get out and be a mover. He can get out and guard on the wings and still be a dude who's willing to throw his body out there and be a deterrent in the paint, despite the fact that the height doesn't suggest that he's supposed to be any kind of real rim protector or anything like that. He is just a guy that really gives them a different level of energy off the bench. And I think he's a guy that deserves to get an extra extra little boost in the postseason he probably will not but I think that he's a guy that should really be considered within a 10-man rotation um and it's interesting because Philly may not go 10 deep but I think that they could go 10 deep in a postseason setting and still be good at all times especially with the staggered minutes of Tyrese Maxey and James Harden their closing lineup is probably going to be something around the lines of like James Joel Tyrese Tobias and D'Anthony, I could see Tobias not being in their closing five and then relying on a guy like P.J. Tucker instead, specifically just to guard. But see, that's the thing, though. That's the crazy part about this team. In terms of a postseason setting, they have so much flexibility because they've got a handful of guys that are shooting the three at a high clip. They've got a bunch of dudes who are either good at guarding or definitely willing to guard in terms of being able to step out in the perimeter maybe not be a real deterrent but they can step out and be a team be, be a team player in terms of being able to operate in a team all a team defense with a guy like Joel and B for example who's one of the better rim protectors in the NBA behind them which allows that aggressive play style on the wing to kind of float its boat because they know that they have somebody behind them that can really help them out and that keeps them protected um I think that's huge. I think that is huge when you talk about what this team does on a night-to-night basis. I mean, it's one of the bigger things in the league, and I think one of I think it reflects just in terms of their their ratings, right? I mentioned that they're 13th in points per game, but they're third in opponents per point. Uh, their opponents points per game. They're fourth in offensive rating and ninth in defensive rating. I believe they're one of only four or five teams that qualify as a team that is both top. 10 in offensive and defensive rating in the NBA this year. That's usually a positive resume for success in the postseason. If your team is both a top five or a top 10 offense and defense going into the playoffs, that usually constitutes to significant success because they are able to get it done on both sides of the floor. And in a series against teams where things are much more game plan, where the game slows down, where calls are much more scarce and things come down to matchups, your ability to guard has just as much weight as your ability to put the ball in the basket. Because during the regular season, these 120 and I mean, these 130 and 140 point crazy outburst games are on a regular basis. During the postseason, I don't think we're going to have as many games that are shooting into those kind of crazy areas. And I think it's one of those things that helps a team like this one, because I think they have the ability to play both styles. They can play a physical brand of basketball and help contribute to slowing the game down by having two guys that can get to the free throw line at, at will. But they can also speed things up by being able to have guys like De'Anthony Milton, Shake Milton, uh, De'Anthony Milton, Shake Milton, Tyrese Maxey, and James Harden to a certain extent with his the facilitation to be able to play a more up-tempo style of basketball if, 
if the pace change is needed, right? They give you those different kinds of flavors and it allows them to have some kind of versatility. So why don't we believe in the Philadelphia 76ers as much? I think it has more to do with, again, kind of how I mentioned the Golden State Warriors past having so much influence on our belief of them, belief in them, excuse me, going into a postseason setting this year. I think the injury history of Joel Embiid in the postseason, the the postseason woes for James Harden, the lack of experience for the Philadelphia 76ers at a high level throughout the rest of the roster. Those are all things that make us worry about Philly going into this postseason. But I feel as though the weight behind those things should not have as much weight as, as they do in comparison to how we feel about the Golden State Warriors with what we can see with our two eyes right now. Joel Embiid, Joel Embiid's injury history in the postseason are freak accident situations that nobody can control. Granted, that's something that now you have to take account for, but it's something that nobody can really control. And therefore, that also means there are potential postseasons where maybe he can get lucky and maybe this can be one of them. And if he is healthy, like, watch out for that. And James Harden, here's a crazy thing about James Harden. James is actually catered his play style more this season to being one that I believe actually could favor more in the postseason than in the past because we're used to James Harden averaging double digit um double digit free throw attempts per game and focusing that heavily into his overall offensive production this season James Harden is averaging 6.6 free throw attempts per game which would be the lowest of his career since his last season in Oklahoma City, which was 2011-2012 season. But he is shooting 7.3 three-point attempts per game, which is not the highest in his career by any stretch, but it's definitely a peak up from the last two to three seasons that he's played in between Brooklyn and his short stint in Philly so far. And he's shooting the best percentage of his career from beyond the arc at 39.8% from back there. So he's taking a step back in terms of his overall free throw attempts, but he's increased his efficiency from beyond the yard. And genuinely speaking, they're going to need that just as much in the postseason as his free throw capabilities, because we know that when James starts to get hot from the free throw line, he starts to become reliant on his visit on his visits to the free throw line. And we know that in the postseason setting that has plagued him. We know that in a postseason setting, when James Harden becomes reliant on the free throw line, it turns him into a much more passive player. And that begins the demise of him performing horribly in postseason settings. It starts to lead him to being a guy who you cannot rely on in big moments in playoff series. But if he can hit the three at a high clip and be a lot less reliant on his ability to get to the free throw line, granted, it is a great trump card to have in his back pocket. But if he is not as reliant on it as he's been on in season past, like I mentioned before, 6.6 free throw attempts per game is the lowest, lowest in a long time. We're talking lowest since his third year in the NBA. That is a significant style change. Now, some could maybe argue that James doesn't have the same first step and things of that nature. I don't think that James's overall aggressiveness has changed. And I do agree that maybe his first step is not as quick as 
it once was, but I think he plays with a much more burly finesse style, kind of similar to like a Shea Gilders Alexander, where his first step has never been the difference between his ability to create contact or not. It's always been about the craftiness, his ability to use his arms and his ability to contort his body to create contact while still being able to finish through said contact. So although he might have lost a step, it's not really been, it has not played a significant factor, at least from my, from how I feel about it. And from what I've seen, his first step has not changed his ability to get paint touches and create contact um, around the basket. But his overall aggressiveness to focus on free throw hunting is not what it used to be. And I think it's leaving, is leading to him being a much more well-rounded player that, that can really help the Philadelphia 76ers in the playoffs. And that's where it matters for Joel and B for James Harden. The truth is the playoff is where it is at because both of these guys are good enough to win a championship, but both of these guys have blunders that have significantly weighed on their legacies. Let's talk about Joel and B too, man, because Joel and B, man, I, I, he's not going to win MVP and it's tough, but Oh my gosh. Joel Embiid has scored in the last Joel Embiid has scored 30 or more points in the last 6 games straight while they've been on this 5 game winning streak. And the dude has just been out of his mind. The dude has been playing at a high level over the last What's that? Three games. He has 10 blocks in the last three games. In the Milwaukee game, which was the Kickstarter to this whole five game winning streak, the dude had 31, six rebounds, and 10 assists with only one turnover in the game. The insane part about that was he also didn't go to the free throw line as insane. He was six of 10 from the free throw line. And then followed that up with a game against Indiana where the man went to the line 19 times and finished the job all 19 times. This Philadelphia 76ers, man, is a, this, this team, I'm no Philadelphia 76ers fan, but this is the team that if I had to pick anybody to give, to, to give real credence to as a team that maybe Maybe if you look at the overall resume, maybe we should not respect them as enough, respect them enough. But if we're using the body of work that's right in front of us, they deserve more credit. The Philadelphia 76ers are the poster child for that. They are the poster child for the team that if you look at their overall history between the players on their team, we should be worried about what they can do in the playoffs. But everything that we've seen this season should make us more believers, should make us all believers in this team because this might be the best fixation. This might be the, excuse me, this might be the best iteration. Let me start over the point just to make sure. This might be the best iteration of the Philadelphia 76ers from a roster construction standpoint that we have ever seen since Joel Embiid was drafted. Because you look at Joel Embiid playing at a top five MVP caliber level. James Harden was not named to the all-star team, but does have an all-NBA case 
for himself at the guard position. Tyrese Maxey, if he had been coming off the bench longer, would probably be in the running for sixth man of the year next to guys like Bobby Portis and Emmanuel Quickly, who are very deserving candidates over there. I think Tyrese Maxey would also be a very heavily featured name in the top three to top five of that conversation. And they have guys like Shake Milton, DeAnthony Milton, Tobias Harris, George Nyang, and like I said beforehand, an X-Factor guy in Paul Reed at the small ball five position that are all really interesting puzzle pieces that fit well within the concept of what they're trying to do. And I didn't even mention P.J. Tucker because I do think he is a wild card as a guy who doesn't necessarily look like the same dude we saw in Miami a season ago or with the Milwaukee Bucks the season prior to that. But he's a guy that in a postseason setting where the physicality goes up. You definitely have to believe that a knockdown corner three specialist like him that can just go out on the other end and guard his tail off and do it against some of the better wings in the NBA, he's going to be a guy that is reliable in the postseason. Hopefully that's the case for Philadelphia's sake. But he's a dude that I think is also very huge in being able to act as the glue for a team that desperately needs some stability going into a setting like the postseason where they need a tone setter to match the physicality change that happens in the postseason. I think P.J. Tucker is a good guy to embody that. So, yeah, man, not as big on the Golden State Warriors, a lot more of a believer in the Philadelphia 76ers, strictly based on the body of work that we've seen in this postseason alone. Maybe I'm crazy. You guys can let me know in the postseason. I mean, you guys can let me know in the comment section, excuse me. Let me know in the comment section down below whether or not you have a better belief in the Golden State Warriors to come out of the Western Conference or the Philadelphia 76ers to come out of the Eastern Conference. Which one do you think is much more likely? Because I'm intrigued to see how you guys feel about it because I think the resumes are two completely different ends of the spectrum. But I think that the histories of these two teams is skewing our takes on what we can see right now with our own two eyes. But this brings me to my overall concept and the big concept of the day that I want to start to get a better understanding of and I want to hear more opinions on. And this was a concept that I heard on the uh, Real GM Radio podcast. I believe it was either them or dunked on. Either way, there was this con concept that relied on the idea of, you know what? No, excuse me. Again, this is another idea that came up on um, the Hoop Collective podcast, which is the idea of how much weight does continuity have in a season like this with as much parity as we've experienced this year? Um, when you look at the overall makeup of the postseason right now, there's a lot of teams that made very significant changes and it really is going to influence how they play specifically in the postseason. The Nuggets might have the most continuity along with the, the Milwaukee Bucks and the Boston Celtics in terms of the continuity on their roster, but Milwaukee is also trying to factor in um, Jay, Jay Crowder, who they brought in, and it's probably going to be a guy who might end up close game, closing games for them. But the Cleveland Cavaliers look different with adding Donovan Mitchell to the roster. The Brooklyn Nets are completely different. 
The New York Knicks add Jalen Brunson. The Miami Heat are the same, but for all the wrong reasons. The Hawks are very different. Um, the Western Conference area for it, the Grizzlies are the same, but this John Morant situation definitely, it definitely hurts them to an extent. And you also look at the fact that they lost a guy in Brandon Clark and they've been missing Steven Adams for a good amount of time, or they missed Steven Adams for a good amount of time. And those two things are huge. The Kings are a new team to the postseason scene in general. The Suns are trying to re they're trying to acclimate a guy in Kevin Durant, who now is going to miss pretty much the rest of the regular season due to a foot injury that was that was suffered in a pregame uh warm-up. Um, I believe it was in the beginning of the Golden State Warrior game that was supposed to be his Phoenix Suns home debut. The Clippers are trying to work in. Bones Highland, uh, Mason Plumley, Eric Gordon, and Russell Westbrook all acquired at the deadline. The Golden State Warriors, I've already went in about how they've been this season. The Minnesota Timberwolves are still without Carl Anthony Towns. The Dallas Mavericks are trying to integrate Kyrie Irving. I'm going down this list of all the significant changes across the NBA to show that I don't think that continuity is genuinely going to have any type of influence on how this postseason goes down. I genuinely think that this is with as much parity, with as much parity as there is in the NBA right now, matchups matters much more than continuity and consistency in the rosters. I think that's the biggest thing. I think that's the biggest thing. And, I, and that goes down, that, and maybe that supports my point about a team like the, the Sacramento Kings, for example, who I advocated for in the last podcast and how I believe that they are a team that although they're new to the postseason scene, they are a team that that you are not going to want to see in the in a seven game series in the first round. I don't think any of those teams coming out of the play in is going to want to see a Sacramento Kings team who is currently eight and two in their last 10 games on a three game winning streak, which is tied for the best streak in the Western Conference right now. And they're second in the standings, and they look like they're going to be positioned well to stay second in the standings, considering this whole John Morant situation with Memphis has been holding them down for a decent amount of time now. Granted, Memphis is kind of turning it around a little bit as they've won the last two games, but nonetheless, it looks like the Kings are going to be in position to be a top three seed in the in the West. And I don't think any team, whether it be the sixth seed or anybody that comes out of play in is going to want to see Sacramento, regardless of the fact that everybody keeps pushing this narrative that they're not ready or that they're the new kids to the block so they can be picked off. I think that the Nuggets having the continuity they have is important, but you have to also factor in that they're trying to kind of reintegrate guys in the sense of getting Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. in an area where they are going to be able to show up on a big stage again. Because this regular season is great, but the last time we saw Jamal Murray, his ability to burst, his ability to just put on an offensive spectacle was what really helped save them in that initial series against the Utah Jazz two seasons ago. He's going to need to be able to provide that because we know what Nicole Jokic brings to the table, but they are going to need that kind of output from Jamal Murray if they want to go the distance in the Western Conference. Same thing with Michael Porter Jr. The dude has quietly been one of the better players in terms of their rotation, despite the fact that he's kind of not one of the first names that comes up anymore. Aaron Gordon is getting much more love. KCP is having a career year. Bruce Brown has been a crazy solid fit for them. 
Michael Porter Jr. just goes out and gets like, you know, he, he goes and gets his buckets and goes home and he just does his thing and he plays really well and he's guarding a lot better this season as well, which is big for him because I think that his ability to guard is the swing skill that could really take him from being like a solid role player to like an elite tertiary, if not secondary scoring option and overall secondary or tertiary uh, star player on a given roster like the Denver Nuggets. So there's that. But if you just look at the overall makeup of all the teams in the NBA right now that are vying for the postseason, I don't see any kind of real continuity that carries enough weight to say their team being together this entire season with no real adjustments is going to be the difference between them being able to win a series. Their familiarity or lack of familiarity is going to be the difference between winning and losing a series because I think a lot of teams at the trade deadline changed in a very significant way, specifically the teams that are going to be in the postseason. And the teams that didn't change much are teams that are not positioned very well to really make any noise in the postseason, a la teams like the Miami Heat and the, the uh, Atlanta Hawks. They're not teams that made significant changes at the trade deadline that are going to impact their ability to produce in the, uh, the postseason at a better level. I think there are going to be teams that both kind of go out in the first round despite being very uh, feisty in the meantime. Um, and then you've got the crazy integrations, the Russell Westbrook to the Clippers, the Kyrie Irving to the Mavericks, the Kevin Durant to the Suns. Um, I would even on a low-key level say that Jalen Brunson being acquired in the offseason and being on this Knicks team is going to be interesting because their look is so much different from what it was in the postseason when they faced off against the Atlanta Hawks a couple seasons back because Julius Randle was the go-to guy pretty much by his lonesome outside of R.J. Barrett. And R.J. Barrett kind of fits better into a tertiary scoring role as opposed to a secondary scoring role. And now that Jalen Brunson is here, the hierarchy change changes here. And that really has helped them out this year. And I think that that's going to help them a lot more in the postseason because you've seen it through their acquisitions of Derrick Rose and Kemba Walker that they're trying to get shot creation, self-shot creation from the point guard position. And without it, they are not as dangerous. And by getting guys like Emmanuel quickly playing at a, at a really good level and Jalen Brunson, who can create shots for himself and play a very physical brand of basketball that I think helped really constitute the run for the Dallas Mavericks last postseason. Jalen Brunson's play style overall is just built for a postseason setting. And so he even gives them a significantly different um, look that I don't think we're used to when it comes, well, we're not used to the Knicks in the postseason in general. Sorry, Knicks fans. But specifically dating back to the last time we saw the Knicks in the postseason, this Knicks team does not look the same in terms of what we're going to get from them or what I say we should get from them in terms of their production on both sides of the floor. That's also another element that Josh Hart adds with his ability to guard in the wing. And all of a sudden, after losing, after leaving the Portland Trailblazers, Josh Hart is back to shooting the three ball at a high clip. And he's one of the best rebounding guards in the NBA and can guard out on the perimeter. He's like the ideal three. Well, I don't want to say he's like the ideal deal three and wing guy there's like a, a, a three and d wing guy there's a, a handful of guys that definitely fit the description a lot better than him but he does it in such more of a, a much more rugged way that i think definitely is more translatable to postseason 
basketball. They're a really physical team, really, really physical team. And I think that they're, they have the, the, the potential, especially with the Nets kind of like being in flux with that roster change. They're, only, they're literally tied with the Nets in the standings in terms of uh, games back. Um, I, think, I think the Knicks have a really good chance. of They're, they're going to be a top six seed because they're just too far ahead of Miami, in my, in my opinion. They're currently, um, what's that, like three and a half games ahead of Miami in the standings right now. I feel like it's very likely that the New York Knicks are going to be a top six seed. I think they have the chance to be a, I think they have a chance to be the fifth seed in the Eastern Conference. And that would lead us to a very interesting storyline based series between them and the Cleveland Cavaliers. I think I've mentioned this on a past podcast as well. It's a lot of new look basketball in the NBA this season. It's actually constituted a lot of the parity during the year because a lot of these teams have addressed some of their bigger holes this offseason and during the trade deadline in a way where all of these teams, for the most part, look competent in their own way. We went down all the teams that are eligible for the playoffs or the play-in right now. You could point to one calling card that can make them a threat in the postseason maybe that's something interesting to do as an episode for the podcast is to go through every team that basically qualifies for the playoffs or the play in and highlight the thing the one thing that would make them a championship contender or that country that could contribute to them making a really deep postseason run so maybe that's an interesting episode to put in the file but if you do that i think that you could make a case for every team, you can you can point to at least one factor that says if this thing clicks, if this thing clicks, or based on what we've seen this regular season, if this translates to the postseason, this team could make a run. I feel like you can make that case for just about every team that qualifies for the postseason in some shape or form, whether it be the playoffs or the play-in. And so I don't think continuity matters. I think, I think. Again, this kind of goes back to my point about looking back at history with teams like the Golden State Warriors and the Philadelphia 76ers. History would suggest that the Golden State Warriors are a playoff or a championship contender, and that Philly is a team that falls more into the the dark horse slash underdog role out the Eastern Conference, despite being a top three seed in in the conference. I also think that history would tell you that continuity plays a very big factor in being able to play at a high level in a postseason setting where understanding that these adjustments that you make on a game-to-game basis mainly come from adaptations within your own roster just as much as adaptations to the way the team is playing against you. It's much more trying to make adjustments internally based on things that you can control as opposed to trying to game plan against the things that are being game planned for your team. But I think this year, the continuity aspect, every team is making some kind of adjustment, especially when you talk about postseason play. Every team, for the most part, is making some kind of play style adjustment that is going to make them look much different than what we are used to seeing that team look like. And therefore, there's no real way to say that the play styles they're rocking with right now 
or the play style that they're trying to implement right now are going to have any kind of influence on what happens. I feel like I'm kind of in ramble mode and I hate when I do that, but it's just one of those things that, um, that, that that's part of what this podcast is for, man. I'm going to be real. But what I'm trying to say overall is I think that with the amount of parity that we have in the NBA this season, that roster construction is going to be more about what pieces fit much more than the familiarity of the pieces that are together. Because I think guys have played together long enough this season to be able to put certain things together. And although the time in between the trade deadline and the start of the playoffs is relatively short in terms of the amount of games to work with, in the postseason, talent does carry. Schematics definitely do carry in terms of being able to scheme properly for a team that you're going to see bare minimum four times in any given series. But I think with the fact that every team in some shape or form is going to be working on the fly in the playoffs in one way or another, outside of, like I said, probably the Boston Celtics and the Denver Nuggets, those are the two teams that are like pretty much consistent down to the, down to the bone in terms of how they looked before the season started and where they are now. Most of the teams in the postseason, or most of the teams that are eligible for the playoffs, all are making some kind of significant change in one way or another, or are going to have to make some kind of last second adjustment, a la like the Warriors with the whole Andrew Wiggins thing, that is going to make them look much different than maybe the team we're looking at right at this moment. But I, I'll leave that up to you guys. Do you guys believe? that continuity is going to have any kind of influence on how this postseason ends because I don't I don't think I think that the parity the parity has made matchups in the NBA matter so much more than just which team can get hot at the right time which team can put it together around the right time I think I think I honestly think that the parity within the league has made it where the hot streak, the hot streak doesn't carry the film, the play style, the identities established by these teams are going to be what what really holds them down in the postseason. I don't think that who the hottest teams are heading into the playoffs is going to matter. I don't think which teams are clicking on all cylinders in terms of their roster playing together well and fitting next to each other like love. I don't think those things are going to have the kind of influence that we're used to seeing in past playoffs. But you guys let me know. You guys let me know in the comment section. But nonetheless, this is where the Routine Jumper podcast comes to a close. Remember to follow the podcast on all um podcast uh, streaming platforms remember to also follow the knockdown j and the routine jumper social media pages on both tiktok and instagram a lot of things on the on the come up your boy is going to be on spring break soon i got to finish this week out then i'll have 10 days off that's going to be huge because during that 10 days time frame we're launching the youtube in terms of officially throwing videos up there we also are going to be launching the blog where i will have about five or six blog posts ready and up and going heading into the postseason i want to do a lot of preparation for the playoffs in terms of content 
And uh, we got a lot of ideas going on. Also, check out the Hit Your Free Throws podcast. We record that every single week. They tend to post on Wednesday at 10 a.m. pretty regularly. And we talk a lot of basketball. Me and my homie TV talk a lot of NBA basketball. And we have some pretty nuanced conversations. I think I try to have pretty open-minded convos here on the Routine Jumper podcast. But it's also a lot better to be able to get the perspective of somebody else and really talk out some of those nuances. So... If you want to hear my thoughts in probably a little bit more of a constructive and formal manner and uh, in conversational manner, as opposed to my uh, stream of consciousness, so to speak, over here, definitely go check out the Hit Your Free Throws podcast. That'll also be linked in the description as well. As always, guys, the NBA is up and kicking, and that means I am up and kicking too. So remember to stay locked in. Remember to subscribe and check us out. But until next time... See you guys later. Peace out.